So here's my deep theological question for you this morning. Was Snow White right in what she advised the dwarves to do? What basis did she have for telling those seven men that they should whistle while they work? Or to put on that grin and start right in and whistle loud and long? Should they whistle a merry tune? Is this even a theological question at all? I believe that it is. God has much to say about it. And we need to hear what God has to say about it so that you and I can be joyful people while we work. So toward that end, amazingly enough, if you would take your Bible and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. So take that and when you found Deuteronomy 33, I'm going to ask you to stand and we are going to hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. And now verse 18. About Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and you, Issachar, in your tents. They will summon peoples to the mountain, and there offer sacrifices of righteousness, They will feast on the abundance of the seas and on the treasures hidden in the sand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again and as always for your word. May we never cease to be amazed that you, the God of the universe, would speak to people like us. And that, Lord, through all these thousands of years, you would superintend your word and truth so that we can read it together this morning. We pray now once again that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would use your truth and only your truth that's spoken and heard this morning to transform our lives into the people that you call us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The blessing before us this morning is different from all the others at which we've looked here in Deuteronomy chapter 33. The other blessings, they take the form of a prayer. Like Reuben, let Reuben live and not die. Or Judah, hear, O Lord, the cry of Judah, be his help against his foes. Or Levi, bless all his skills, O Lord, and be pleased with the work of his hands. Or Joseph, may the Lord bless his land with precious dew from heaven above and with the deep waters that lie below. Or Asher, let him be favored by his brothers and let him bathe his feet in oil. Prayers of blessings. Others are more descriptions or or, or more statements like Gad. Blessed is he who enlarges Gad's domain. Or Dan, Dan is a lion's club. Or Cub or Naphtali. Naphtali is abounding with the favor of the Lord and is full of blessings. So it's either a prayer or a description. For these other tribes. But the blessing before us this morning to Zebulun and Issachar is unique because it comes in the form of a command. Look in verse 18. You read the command. Rejoice. Be filled 
with gladness. Now, this is not one of those moments where I can use my preacher voice. <laughs> no, the Hebrew. And, and then take a paragraph to tell you what this word means in Hebrew. This is what it means. Rejoice. Be glad. There's no nuance of meaning beyond that. So let's say that you are part of the tribe of Zebulun or Issachar. And you choose to obey. I am going to obey the Lord in this. I am going to rejoice and be glad. So you wake up in the morning. And you haven't slept very well. Because the roasted lamb and olives you ate for supper didn't sit very well with you. Your tent is hot and stuffy. Between that and the tent and the restless camels making all that noise... I don't even know if camels make noise, but go with it, all right? You're wide awake. And, and while you're wide awake, you lie there and you start worrying about all the work that you have to do the next day, and, and you can't go back to sleep at all. So morning comes, and you try to focus your baggy, bleary eyes and drag your tired body out of bed. When does your joy begin? Do you say, don't expect me to be joyful until after my first cup of coffee? Or do you say, don't expect me to be joyful until my, after my first cup of coffee, a hot shower, and breakfast? Or do you say, don't expect me to be joyful until after my first cup of coffee, a hot shower, breakfast, until I get through my morning at work? Or do you say, don't expect me to be joyful until my coffee, hot shower, breakfast, morning, and I get to the end of my work day? Or... Do you say, don't expect me to be joyful until I've had my coffee, hot shower, breakfast, finish my day at work, come home, have time to uh, unwind, relax, have dinner, then I'll be joyful. Or, do you say, don't expect me to be joyful until I've had my coffee, hot shower, breakfast, work my whole day, come home, unwound, had dinner, put the kids to bed, I'm in bed myself, and now I'll rejoice. Only... The roast lamb didn't sit very well with you and the tent was stuffy and the camels were making all that noise. I'll be joyful tomorrow. See, we can always delay being joyful. We can always delay being glad. And we are very proficient at finding reasons in our lives to justify not being joyful. And many of those reasons are legit. Because Jesus himself says, in this world you will have trouble. So we can find reasons not to rejoice. But nevertheless, the passage puts before us and before the people of Zebulun and Issachar this command, they are to rejoice. But it's a very specialized time for joy. So look again in verse 18. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out. And you, Issachar, in your tents. So what is this about? This going out and in your tents. Well, almost all commentators, John Calvin included, so everybody relax. They, they see this on one level as addressing the work life. The work life of Zebulun and Issachar. These two brothers are like a... Another set of brothers that we read about in Genesis 25, Jacob and Esau. And scripture tells us that when these boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man 
living in tents. And so the idea is Esau went out to work, going out. But Jacob, on the other hand, stayed close at home and lived among the tents. And so it is for Zebulun and Issachar. The land that Zebulun is going to receive as their inheritance in the promised land, it's going to put them really close to the Mediterranean Sea. And they're going to have their own little harbor, and it's going to be under the shelter of Mount Carmel. And so from there, this tribe will be able to, to access the sea and all sorts of opportunities for commerce, for export and for import, a little bit of fishing. Look at verse 19. It says, They will feast on the abundance of the seas and on the treasures hidden in the sand. And so the idea is that the focus for Zebulun will be outward with the shipping, with the ocean, out and away. Issachar, on the other hand, they are going to stay close at home. And their pursuits are going to be grazing and agricultural. So perhaps it will be that Issachar will provide the animals for the caravans that take the goods away to be exported and the animals that will then bring in the imports and distribute them throughout the nation of Israel. Work would take one tribe away, keep another close at home. But here's the thing. Whatever their work, they were to rejoice in it. In God's economy, work and joy are not mutually exclusive. It's quite the opposite. And what's commanded here of both tribes that are called to do very different types of jobs is that in their work, while they work, they must rejoice. Uh-oh. Now we're potentially in trouble, aren't we? If joy and work are supposed to go together. There's some of you here this morning and you love your job. It's your passion. And you enjoy it. Like, I've got the best job in the world. I am passionate about my job, so I'm a little skewed in my perspective of this this morning. But that's not true of everyone here in this room. Some people here don't love their job. It doesn't allow them to pursue their passion. They're not even interested in that job. But please notice, there are no caveats listed here in this command. Zebulun, rejoice only if you like fishing and exporting. Issachar, rejoice only if you like taking care of sheep. No, that's not what it says. It simply says rejoice. So, since work takes up such a large part of our lives, and since for many people, if we're honest, work provides the reasons that steal the joy from our lives, we need to know how it is we can rejoice in our work. And let me just say, I promise I don't mean to tease you. We get to the brink of being through with Deuteronomy so many times. And then I don't finish, right? I just prolong it. But I, I, I promise I'm not doing it on purpose. It's just that unpacking these verses is so rich, we can't just speed through them. Because if Zebulun... And Issachar are called to rejoice in their work, and we're called to rejoice in our work. We need to take the time to figure out how we can do that, even if it means we don't finish this whole blessing this morning. Wink, wink. 
if we're going to rejoice in our work, whatever it is, first and foremost, we need to remember that work is what God has created us to do. Work is what God has created us to do. It is true that on the sixth day of creation, God created man and woman in his image. And on the seventh day, he rested. So before Adam and Eve had done any work at all, they rested in the Lord and they rested with the Lord in his Sabbath rest. But then the first day of the week came and they worked and they worked for the next six days until the seventh day of rest came about again, doing what it is that God had called them to do, which was to tend and care for the earth. So please understand that work is not a curse for sin. Scripture is silent about the feelings that Adam and Eve had toward work. But we can fill in the ellipsis. And we can rightly imagine that working in the beauty and the glory of the very good garden that God had created must have been an exercise of continual joy. Did, did God bless their work in such a way that the beauty of his creation became more beautiful under their care? What if that were part of God's creation plan? More work, more beauty. More work, more beauty. Then their work would become an ongoing act of joy, right? And, and how did the animals respond to the care of Adam and Eve? You know, one of the little joys in life, or actually a pretty big joy in life, is when you come home and your cute little puppy comes running up, right? Wagging his tail, jumping on you, licking your face, right? That's a joy, right? No? How many of y'all have dogs? Come on, work with me on this. Imagine if Adam and Eve got that joy all day long if the animals responded to them in that way. We don't know the answer to these questions. We can only ponder them, but we know this, that God gives dignity to both the worker and the work. God gives dignity to both the worker and the work. Work is not a punishment for sin. But when sin entered the world, it did distort work. Like it distorted everything else. Adam would continue to do the work that he had done before. But only now he would encounter thorns and thistles. The ground would produce for him. But now only by the sweat of his brow. But that does not mean that work is bad. It's just tainted by sin. And so by the command of God, you and I have to figure out how to insert joy into this activity, which he has created us to do. And how are we going to do that? And the answer is always the same in all of life. It's by knowing our real identity, by knowing who we really are most deeply and most significantly, when we are at work. And as always, we have before us the example of Jesus. And if you've been around me very long at all, you know that what we're about to talk about is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's John chapter 13. 
And there we see that Jesus did what he did because he was secure in his identity. I'll just review the story. You know it very well. The evening meal was being served for the Last Supper. But there was a problem. There were 12 sets of dirty feet around the table. That was a problem, culturally speaking. But foot washing was one of those jobs, one of the work situations that none of the disciples was willing to do. So they looked around the room. And they didn't see anybody in the room that they could call on to do this kind of work. And so they left the work undone. But Jesus was not willing to leave that kind of work undone. And so you know what happened. He got up from the table, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, got a basin of water, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now what is important here is why. Jesus was able to do this kind of work. The Apostle John tells us in John 13 verses 3 and 4 what Jesus knew. And here's what he knew. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that he had come from the Father. And Jesus knew that he was returning to God. And so he did what he did. Jesus knew these three truths about himself. He was empowered by God. He knew where he'd come from. And he knew where he was going. So he did the work he did. And then after Jesus did it, he said this to his disciples. I've set you an example that you should do what I have done. And so if you and I will truly follow Jesus' example in this, it goes way beyond just the literal act of washing someone's feet. We follow his example not only in what he did, but why he did it. And herein lies our ability, yours and mine, to find joy in our work. We always remember our identity while we are working. No matter what that work is, whether we like it or dislike it, whether we are passionate about it or depressed by it, while we are working, we, like Jesus, know where we are from. Do you know where you're from? Let me tell you where you're from. John chapter 1 verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of the natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's where you're from. 